0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Renee Cunningham, a marriage and family therapist and union psychoanalyst based in Scottsdale, Arizona. Her new book, Archetypal Nonviolence, King, Young, and Culture Through the Eyes of Selma is now available from Rutledge. There are only a few copies left of Rendering Unconscious, the book Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, is on sale now at trapart.net for only $12. Visit trapartnet, T T-R-A-P-A-R-T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon patreon.com forward slash vanessa23carl that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode
1: Um, Well, I trained in California as a marriage and family therapist back in the early 90s and was very much on the MFT track, stayed a marriage and family therapist for, my goodness, quite some time and moved to Phoenix, I think in 96 or 97, got licensed here. Um, And I got into a... A Jungian analysis. I look for a Jungian in particular because when I lived in LA, I was in um, analysis with someone there, but it was maybe six months, and then I had to move. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I think I've always loved Jungian psychology because of the the, the field of depth, um, and I could I could always say, well, theoretically, it fit me, but. I don't think that's really um, a real genuine answer. The truth is, um, I have had a lot of loss in my life. And um, not unlike most people, um, that loss uh, affects us deeply, or those losses affect us deeply. And I have been and was in search of meaning from a young age. and I could never really get answers to these existential questions really in most of the therapeutic work I'd done prior to Jungian psychology. It felt to me like there was always a piece missing that someone didn't quite seem to understand about me or within my own suffering. I ch- I couldn't get it hooked up. And, um, Jungian psychology has given me um, an understanding of, I wanna say the telos of the soul, as we call it, um, in a way that no other theory has. And so it really continues to enrich my life. It's not a technique. And while it's a theory, it's more of a way of life. It's a commitment to the exploration of one's soul so that's really a a long-winded answer to why I got into it and um, I think within the first couple of analytic sessions I had this feeling of completeness that I was in the right place that I had not had before.
0: Can you say more about kilos for people that might not know?
1: Well, telos is like um, an understanding of of an inner order to oneself and a greater connection to the outer world as well. So the telos of the soul is an organic process of kind of uh, one's spiritual side, the spiritual side of the personality and the process of it coming forward in someone, coming out, and then traveling down and connecting within a person in such a way that they feel um, embedded in their life. They feel as if there's meaning, there's purpose, there is some particular higher order uh, to the personality and the individual. And it's kind of this real cat and mouse game sometimes with capturing the essence of one's soul, or as you and I might know it, the self. And of course, the self for Jungians is a little bit different than uh, the psychoanalytic school. But we get glimpses of these deep parts of ourselves, you know, this, this kind of deep knowledge of, oh, there I am. There I am. This feels right. It's a little bit like following the breadcrumbs, not knowing where you're going. And then suddenly you have this moment where it's everything in you is enlivened. And that becomes uh, the way to the next step and the next step. And so this is kind of the souls unfolding, if you will, through inner reflection and getting to know one's internal world order, so to speak, and um, watching it and being engaged uh, consistently in one's experience of life, community, and other. <clears throat> yeah.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned how it's a, Jungian psychology is a little different than the psychoanalytic school. And I found like, well, in my graduate program, for, I became a psychologist, I have a PsyD. And there, there was not, none of this. <laughs> so I well, had to I, go. I think I I specifically was in the psychodynamic track. And so yeah. I did take all my electives in psycho uh, dynamic theories, but it was mostly like object relations. And it, it just basically depends, I think, who's teaching at the school, you know, the, the two people that taught the electives in psychoanalytic or psychodynamic theory. At my school, one was like a really like drive theorist Freudian, (laughs) like not even he didn't even go to structural theory. Um, And the other was object relations. So that's what I learned from them. But like even in that, we only read one paper by Freud. It was like uh, morning and melancholia. That was it. And we didn't yeah. read anything from Jung and I was so surprised because I went to be, wanted to be a psychologist because I loved reading Freud and Jung. And then when I yeah. got there, there wasn't hardly any <clears throat> of them. Um, so I had to seek it post postdoctorally and get trained mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, but I love reading Freud, Jung, Lacan, Klein, Winnicott, I love everyone.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do too. I do too. And in Jungian training, depending on the school that you go to, of course, um, you can get psychoanalytic or psychodynamic theoretical training. And um, I I got bits and pieces of it and I loved it. And I actually feel that both schools of thought, both branches of depth psychology really marry each other beautifully. I mean, there's nobody that grasps the inner world of the baby, I think, better than Winnicott. And uh, of course, Jung was very much focused on the individuation process, which during his time took place mostly in the later stages of life. But if you look at both of the schools, you've got this beautiful uh, psychodynamic theory or psychoanalytic theory that goes from birth through life or through, through primarily you know, uh, adulthood. And then Jung picks it up and moves, moves further out into the cosmic states of the, of the psychic experience, psychological uh, wellness. So holding both is really beautiful. It's like looking at a multifaceted diamond you know, and um, there are often exchanges of different words that sometimes can seem as if they are actually the same meaning. And so I love the, um, I love where we are today in psychology because I, I, I hope that we're moving more towards an integrated depth psychological field where, where we can really hold both of this as a, almost a, an image of the whole
0: yeah, that would be ideal. I think yeah. I think cuz um one of my one of my professors in school, he was very eclectic in that way. I actually tr- like worked with him in a hospital setting doing consultation liaison, so it was basically like if people were in the hospital, not in the mental health area, but just for regular medical illnesses. And if their primary physician thought they were a little more depressed or anxious than usual for being in the hospital, they would call the psychologist and we would go visit them, like in their room while they were in the hospital, if they were there for a couple of weeks or whatever, and just check in and see how they were doing. So even though we were doing this very like behavioral kind of supportive work, the the professor I was working with was very psychodynamically inclined. And he was actually trained as an analyst when my school used to train analysts long ago, which they don't anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But he had this very kind of eclectic view of even like, looking through all these different psychological lenses as far as like drive theory or ego psychology but also an object relations but he also you know felt that like CBT had its place and behavioral therapies had their place and like relaxation relaxation training could be useful too so it's like these are all tools that you can use but it's when we go like, like when most CBT practitioners like only will do that and just say like, you just need these tools, they don't get to the deeper word. But on the other hand, like if somebody's having panic attacks, why not help them with a little cognitive reframing until they can kind of get themselves kind of calmed down enough to be able to do the talk therapy?
1: Yeah, good point, right? You've got to get the nervous system calmed down enough to take in new information, um, and so I agree with you. I think we're on um, the precipice of a, a whole paradigm shift in mental health, um, at least here in America. I can't speak for you know, Europe, but um, you know, we've been on this uh, old paradigm for a long time. And I think COVID is gonna move us into a space of a very much more progressive way of treating people Um, that's more effective, efficient. And thus, I think that the schools of psychology are going to have to really coalesce into a model that is different than it has been as well. You know, where we have this school here and this school here and this school here where there's more of a comprehensive uh, way of working because I think the issues we're going to be dealing with in the coming years are going to be really deep and, and very different than what we've seen. We still don't know how this... Right, how this uh, pandemic is going to deeply affect our children, our adolescents, and our adults—you know, the entire population. So um, it's an exciting time to be in psychology, I think.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, and even like people are bringing now. Uh, more in like all the systemic issues that affect people. Like it's not just about the individual and do they have some sort of biological condition, mental health condition, but like what are the systemic issues that are affecting this person? systemic abuses or systemic racism? And then even like the more transpersonal, like I also like Stanislav Grof and Abraham Maslow And the more idea, like you're saying with Jung, we're we're looking at like humanity as a whole, like as a collective, how is humanity evolving at this time? And like looking at us on a global scale, because now now we're more than ever like a global community where everything we do affects everybody else on the planet. So kind of looking at us like in a holistic sense in that way as well.
1: Yeah, yes, very true. And I think cultural psychology is very important to understand now um, because this is kind of the sticky wicket, if you will, in our development right now, right? Immigration, um, facing the other within so we can live with the other in the outer world, and cultural differences, integration, adaptation to global warming, all these issues are compacting our human experience, right? And cultures are colliding. And I think this is just a facet or, um, of what's contributing to some of the um, acrimony. Um, of course, it's a very, very uh, complex issue, uh, but Part of this is cultural and has to do with uh, technology merging us all together. And I think some of it is our attempt, if not all of it is our attempt, to make space for each other. And as a human community to connect and integrate and adapt to sort of this new epoch that we are moving very rapidly towards, which will be challenging are very survival I think, um, so it's an imp- it's really an important time to have cultural support, emotional support, and education. There's not, there's not enough collective education on dealing with aggression and violence. Yeah, I think
0: that psychology, needs to be kind of taught starting in like primary school
1: (laughs) yeah I mean (laughs) I agree I mean I love that mindfulness is being taught to children and um being kind and altruism that is being integrated into the classroom that's really wonderful you know um But I know here in America, at least how I grew up, and growing up in the 60s, which is where my book takes off, um, uh, excuse me, I've got something in my throat, Vanessa, Archetypal Nonviolence, King, Jung, and Culture Through the Eyes of Selma, I'll just hold it up, There's the book cover. How they do it in the makeup shows, they do this whole thing like that. <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, that, that in America, anyway, my experience has been um, that we don't really deal with our aggression well. We don't talk about it. We don't um, work with it as uh, in schools. We don't, or we didn't, when I was growing up, it was something that really wasn't expressed. And of course, this manifests in all kinds of issues uh, systemically, whether it's in family or community or culture or workplace, right? Um, And so these are going to be, I think, essential key issues as we move forward, particularly where um, immigration and cultural diversity is concerned. We don't have a lot of tolerance for there as our American history has very well shown. We are a power-driven country. I think uh, as many of my colleagues have have talked and um, expressed that Americans are very much in the narcissistic stage of development. Uh, We don't know how to move beyond a power paradigm very well. Um, And so in order to, as, um, as your school of thought would say, to move to the depressive position, we have a lot of work to do, right? Um, getting to that depressive position, which is beyond seeing the world as black and white, or being able to hold both the good and bad in someone, takes a tremendous amount of psychological work. And in in our country, we just, as our political situation is showing, we don't know how to do that very well. And as we know psychologically, um, when you don't deal with a situation internally inside of yourself, what happens? As Jung says, it shows up in the outer world as fate. And so these issues continue to wash through our nation as if in a washing machine, over and over and over again as a breadcrumb, if you will, or a very huge um, wound that we simply must begin addressing if we're to become a more conscious nation and a more conscious world. So I hope (laughs) that the next administration really sets the tone for that to happen. Because if we can't begin reflecting, then we're going to forever be stuck. Stuck in the narcissistic stage. And of course, fundamentalism really is uh, at the cornerstone of it, the lack of the capacity for an individual to reflect on their behavior. And to really, excuse me, hold the notion that that who I am fighting in my outer world also lives in me and how does that live in me? What is it I do not want to see or know about myself that um, is important in my capacity to connect through compassion and empathy? What is that? Who is that in me? So this is a huge uh, paradigm shift that has to take place. And I think it's even more so difficult, Vanessa, because we have this dissolution of organized religion. And while organized religions don't really um, do a lot of shadow work, as we call it in the Jungian world, or a lot of work on helping individuals discover their darker side, while that doesn't necessarily happen as as it could, it does contain people and it does uh, prescribe to a particular order and so religion is very important Um, and with the dissolution of this in numbers as we're seeing people are really hungry for a way of life that provides meaning uh, holds one accountable for their behavior And guides them to um, a connection to the greater good for for the for the duration of their life. So I just had a whole mouthful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. How did the idea for the book come about?
1: Well, um, the book is, as art is, a very interesting process, right? I mean, it's really, you know, it's. um, I would say it's the story of my own life in a way. And while I don't talk about myself personally in the book, I give examples of growing up in the deep South in Alabama during the civil rights movement. And it was a profoundly impactful time for me as a little girl. I think I moved to Alabama when I was um, two and lived there until I was 12. And my dad was a military officer And, you know, normally, Vanessa, as a military kid, you're moving every two years. Every 18 months, you get stationed somewhere else. But my father had entered flight school in um, the early 60s. And just about this time, of course, the troops were beginning to go to Vietnam. And so we moved off base into this very small town in Alabama, and he finished training and then served two tours in Vietnam. And um, so there was quite, there were quite a few years, 10 in total, that we lived there. So during this time, um, the civil rights movement was in the, you know, it was uh, cooking pretty, pretty hot. Um, and I had experiences in my own analytic work that I could not make sense of. And, um, you know, how these things happen, right? Memories and fragments and all these images were coming up. And for some, for personal reasons that I now know why, I, um, I was captivated by Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, captivated by the beauty of his voice, the messages that he was sending out through the television and the marches and the, the um, demonstrations that we could see, it made, he made sense to me of a very chaotic existence which made no sense to me. So when your father goes away to the Vietnam War and it's not really explained and you don't get 24 hour imagery and pictures and reports, a child makes all kinds of things about that. And um, it was a tremendous time for me at about five years old. It was the first time he went away. It was very traumatic. And around me, of course, were the civil rights you know, movement uh, in the state that I lived in. So the air itself was highly charged and of course, racism was at its peak in that time and uh, or the, should we say the rebellion against it thankfully and I could feel that too. And as a little kid, this conflu- con- confluence of loss and violence and this magnetic tension in the air of fear and uncertainty uh caused, caused what I believe now was really a pretty significant depression, even at six. He went away at five, came back at six and a half, left again when I was seven and a half and was gone till I was like nine. So the first time he left, it was a very significant impact, had a very significant impact on me. And in 2013, I think it was, I was studying for my um, dissertation or my thesis for what I was gonna write about um, when I graduated or in order to graduate. And we had a conference in Birmingham. And I thought, oh my God, I could go back home. And I can see now where all these pieces, you know, perhaps fit together. And so I made a decision to rent a car and go down to this town that I grew up in at least maybe three days before the conference started. And on the way down there, I had, I was just very steeply, I was was just steeping in the feelings, you know? And I had this moment where I thought, I have to write about Selma. And then I thought Selma, I don't even really remember Selma. I'm having this inner dialogue. I don't, I, I don't remember that much about it. Sure you do. Just you know, let's let's go and let's look this up, right? And so I drove through Selma, and I stopped in Selma. I rode around the town. I went on the bridge. I went to the museum, um, and then I went to. Um, the uh, museums in Birmingham, the church in Birmingham where the bombings happened. Um, And on my way down to this town I grew up in, I thought, you know, I'm gonna look this up when I get to the hotel. And I got to my little hotel and I pulled out my computer and this was in October, would have been what, 2014, I think. And the following spring was going to be the 50th anniversary of the marches. So I thought, well, that's quite a synchronicity. Um, I'm going to hold on to this idea. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. And the more I researched and the more I explored, particularly my inner dreams and fantasies and, you know, was doing art, things like that it became very clear that this was exceedingly important to talk about from a Jungian point of view, what happened in Selma. And so um, I began doing the research on it, (coughs) published my paper. And of course, as these things work, the more you explore, the more you uncover, and the more you uncover, the more you wanna explore. And so um, I submitted, after, after I graduated, I still was working on this idea. And it just felt, I don't know how to explain it. And the only, well, I do know how to explain it. I can explain it from a, from a Jungian point of view, is that archetypally, Jung's uh, cornerstone of his theory is archetypes, which is affective images and feelings that are imprinted in us and and get activated by outer and inner conditions. So going down to Selma, something got activated in me as part of my father complex, the cultural complex. And let's not forget the zeitgeist of the times globally also activates these inner experiences that sometimes we don't know what to do with, as a perfect example is today. We really have very much a a political zeitgeist, just like the 60s, and as everyone has been talking about. And we often don't know what to do with that energy. So it got constellated in me, and it was huge. So one of the first things I did was, of course, I graduated and began working on the book And of course, Trump was doing his campaigning and you could feel the electric. You could just feel it in the air, the charge, right, Uh, particularly of women. Um, And so my first move was to uh, go to the Women's March in Washington, D.C. in 2017, right after the inauguration. And that really sealed the deal for me that, oh yes, this is what I'm gonna write about. This is, we are in it again. we ha- I have to write about this from a psychological point of view. Because really, you know, if you read uh, the civil rights movement, if you read about Gandhi, if you read about Mandela, you know, we think about them as special people, which they were very magnetic, special, special people, wh- which I believe carried a, um, carried a piece of the collective in them that they needed to live out. And so we think about it from those terms, but we don't think about it from, well, each of us has embedded in us some form of activism of some kind. And how does that work? What does that look like? Um, And then I began thinking about the consulting room and how this gets played out in the consulting room. So when I went to the march in 2017, um, it was just astounding. And I had a lot of synchronicities that let me know, okay, here's the next breadcrumb. Here's the next breadcrumb. Here's the next breadcrumb. And I have to tell you that this march was absolutely electrifying, Vanessa. It was incredible. Um, and it really fed me for the rest of the writing of the book, all the experiences that I absorbed and the the feelings of just, um, I don't don't even know how to put it in words, not even being able to take in what African-Americans must have been through. I just could not, right? I did not know how to uh, put myself in their Shoes growing up in the south on an opposite side of the tracks, except that I knew I was angry too, about how I grew up and why it was like that. And this set me on my own path to find out what this was all about this racism that I had not been taught about as a child. Uh, When I grew up blacks and whites lived on the opposite side of town. We didn't talk about it. If we talked about it at home, it was talked about from a moral point of view that racism is wrong. But from a child's perspective, that doesn't make any sense. We don't know what that means. Why did it happen? What's the root of it? uh, How do we fit in, right? And so I really went on a journey to understand this place in me that felt oppressed, had my own traumas, um, had experienced different things in my life. Uh, in my 20s, I fell in love with an African-American man and experienced on, on my side uh, rejection from family. Um, you know, socially, it was there were places we would go together where we weren't accepted. That was only a taste of what our fellow Americans, our fellow blacks, live with day in and day out so I, I still cannot put my head around that kind of oppression but I thought well this is my story to tell as a white woman and I'm just going to tell it so I started with the march and uh, I had all kinds of experiences after that that were quite remarkable that let me know I was on the right track and to just keep writing and write from a Jungian point of view about what's going on in the culture today and what actually happened on that bridge in Selma that changed for just a moment in time racism uh, for the greater good and the passing of the 65 Voting Rights Act. So the book is really about the psychological process of consciousness from a cultural point of view. How do we develop as a culture? And Selma aptly demonstrates this, I believe.
0: Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. Um, So Selma is just a magnificent story and it is, I believe, a sacred story Because symbolically, right, as analysts, we're always watching the symbol making process, meaning where is the patient psyche wanting to go? What is the unconscious pointing to them and their self pointing towards that they are stuck in and cannot get to? Well, as a nation, historically, this happens in America. We remain regressed and stuck in our capacity to be more formally connected and more interrelational with our fellow man because of lack of reflection and racism as our core wound. So racism is our core wound, colonization earlier than that with Native Americans, right? Um, And In racism, if we look historically, we have all of these movements in time, these time periods where racism comes up onto the shore of consciousness as a problem and it quickly becomes adapted to in some way and then it goes back into the unconscious and we pretend as if it's not an issue, right? So we had in the civil rights movement, What happened is um, after World War II, um, a lot of the marginalized or oppressed women as well. So women, African-American men, the Tuskegee Airmen's a good example of really incredible men who had participated in World War II. Uh, The women um, also participated for the first time in mass in the workforce. And so all these people that had these traditional traditional roles and oppressed roles and marginalized roles like the African-American were uh, finally able to participate in the American experience because we needed them. But then the men come home from war and and everyone who participated, the oppressed are told to go back to their old roles. Well, they don't wanna do that. So what had been percolating in the unconscious started coming up in these little fires everywhere in the collective. So for instance, in the 1940s African, um, excuse me, in in the 1940s um, nonviolence really began then um, with people like Bayard Rustin and C.T. Vivian and um, Diane Nash and amongst many, many, many other blacks began these counter sit-ins, highway, high, riding on buses on the highway. Um, they did all of these incredible nonviolent trainings and s- began challenging the underpinnings of racism in the deep South. So here we have something starts to bubble up. Okay, this is what happens as we know with individual psychological development. A person gets a taste of who they are, whether that's in college, whether it's in high school, whether it's in elementary school, it's usually they get a taste of who they are through opposition. Somebody tells them no. (laughs) And somebody tells them no too often or trauma results from oppression. And they may get a taste of their goodness. They may get a taste of their well of who they really are by busting through developmental milestones or sometimes it's enforced in trauma and crisis. And they discover that they're not as bad as they think they are, that actually they've been held down. Then what you get is the activation and the the forward momentum of psychic processes pushing this person towards development. So they may come into analysis saying, I've had enough of this mother-in-law. I'm done with this husband and his oppression. I'm not gonna put up with my neighbor doing this to me. I'm busting out of this job, right? And we know that you can't just leave a job without knowing why you're leaving a job and how are you participating in this problem, right? And so they go on sort of this uh, activism movement in analysis and the analyst's job is to be with them as they go on this journey. And it usually begins with a march they've had it, right? And they throw down the gauntlet and they've been in exile and they're on their way to find their new home. And this is what happened in civil rights. And the men and women of of the civil rights movement um, are just incredible individuals, in this my opinion, with their own shadows, thankfully, their own issues, their own divisions, their own interpersonal stuff, But united, they went on a movement that they trained themselves for for quite some time. They didn't just gather and go, they knew what they were doing. And so by the time these marches start really percolating, Martin Luther King uh, comes into the image here as this freshly minted 27-year-old Southern Baptist minister um, who had just graduated with his PhD the year before freshly married. He's very intent on raising his family. And Rosa Parks decides she's not going to sit down on the bus. And uh, King himself comes from a family of ministers and activists. And he very much believes you don't just go to church on Sunday. This is not how we do it in our community. We are oppressed people who deserve to have a life. And so his He had his Christian doctrine and his Christian philosophy in the underpinnings of nonviolent movements that he integrated into nonviolence uh, by the inspiration of Gandhi's work. And so King gets his first shot at nonviolence in in, uh, Montgomery in the bus boycotts of 63, I believe. And these bring uh, the um, Civil Rights Act of '64 into being. He gets the um, Nobel Peace Prize in the fall of '64, and actually, I take that back. The bus the bus movement was in '55. Uh, he has a quiet period of about six years, but he begins planning and strategizing what they're going to do next for for um, gaining rights for the African-American. So he does get his um, Nobel Peace Prize. He gets invited to Selma for the voting rights demonstration. And he always said, and this doesn't apply just to Blacks, if we don't have the right to participate psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually in the very environment that we grow up in, we will never grow up. We're doomed. So for him, the Voting Rights Act was the pivotal point, no matter what our history said, to Blacks getting a fair shot at the American experience. And I think this was just an incredible confluence of determination, uh, transgenerational trauma for African Americans, um, and motivation to change it. And they were not going to move off the dime till it happened. So Selma was where it all happened. And it was very strategic. It was very well-planned. And they brought nonviolence into Selma and they started integrating it. And what they did is they decided, if you look at the map, Vanessa, of this little Southern town, it's really remarkable. There's the courthouse, a small church and a bridge at the other side of the town, probably four blocks from where they are, that go across what's called the Alabama River into the greater uh, south and uh, into Montgomery and up north. And so he decides, okay, every voting rights day, we're going over to the courthouse, we're gonna protest and here's how we're gonna do it. And they would strategize and their goal Uh, was to get the town's sheriff really angry and get him to act like a racist in front of the cameras. And then the cameras would broadcast out to the nation racism and what it looks like. And so it was this in your face, uh, recreation or enactment of reality that they experienced for hundreds of years. So this happens in analysis, right? We sit with our patients and they project and they swear that we are the problem. And what happens, there's an an enactment of the trauma and then comes the alchemical process of shining the mirror and going, are you sure it's me, right? Are you sure this is me? Or are you acting towards me how you accuse everyone else of acting towards you? And then you get a moment of insight like, oh my God, I do do that, don't I? Now that doesn't come easily and it often doesn't sometimes does not come for years, the more complex the trauma is, right? But on a collective level, this is what started happening. The cameras reflected it, people started talking about it. Um, They were making movement and they knew they were making movement because more people started to join the marches. This is the sign that consciousness is starting to proliferate across culture and in communities. So Blacks who were afraid to participate that lived in Selma began to join the ranks and the marches got bigger and they got more confident and as a collective group, they would go back to the church and they would um, debrief and they would mourn together and grieve together the hundreds of years of oppression. And they would train and they would get inspired by King's sermons and C.T. Vivian's sermons. and um, these other magnificent um, ministers that were alongside him, Ralph, Ralph Abernathy and goes on and on. Uh, but this gave them strength to do the next march and the next march and the next march. And this nonviolent tension was very difficult because the collective aggression started to percolate and they had to refuse violence in the face of being an oppressor. How hard would that be? right getting sucked back into an old pattern and you refuse the pattern and that's what they did and so what started happening is the nation began having protests just like we saw this past June and beautifully this past June of course the media served as the the lens to consciousness and that's what it served in Selma And so you get these marches and these movements and these demands for change that happen. And then we had the crossing, finally, there there were murders that happened, which were tremendously up, uh, uh, created tremendous upheaval, but also created the motivation of the government to get involved and the government to come in and try and stop the marches. And what ended up happening is King began negotiating with President Johnson, about how to do this march to Montgomery. And they wanted to do a five-day march to Montgomery. And there was this back and forth, like in all negotiations of accepting responsibility for your issues, uh, there was this back and forth. No, you can't do it, yes, I can. No, you can't, yes, I can kind of thing. And um, Johnson and King either made an agreement, depends on how you read this in the history books, Some people say that King agreed on the third attempt to Montgomery uh, that he would not, um, that he would um, not march. They wanted him to not march and he said, but I have to march. And so what got negotiated is that the troopers would not inflict violence if King would just turn around on the bridge and not go to Montgomery because it was just too dangerous. And he said, I can't make that promise. I've come this far, I need to go. The bottom line is at the last second, he's across the bridge with 2000 people. They kneel and pray and something shifts and he gets up and turns around and goes back to the church. The point being Vanessa, there's many more details to this but the point being change didn't happen without the victim turning towards the, the um, predator, or if I, what I call the master slave, and the master had to supplicate to the slave. They both had to work in tandem uh, together and not forcefully seeking a power paradigm position, but vulnerability being the thing that clenched them. In other words, they moved from a position of power to relatedness, and everything opened up, which led to the crossing over the bridge and the writing and passing of the 65 voting rights act. So it is this idea that the ego is not alone, right, we know that in self states in treatment what we call these self states from trauma or development must come together in a certain way in coordination with the ego so that there's more of a unified psyche and this is a replication that happens in culture so by observing culture we can see what happens internally inside of someone when they when they are seeking psychological wholeness and so it's just this incredible orchestration that doesn't always happen this way but Selma really demonstrated what happens when the ego gives up its defenses and surrenders to something greater than it in order to develop so it's a move from the narcissistic position into more of the from the schizoid more to the depressive if you will if that makes sense I will say one more thing that's very important for people to hold in mind. And that is that in places of hopelessness and despair, gardens grow. You know, during um, wartime, it's, it's amazing that people will, in the middle of a field of rubble, dig flower beds and grow gardens. So it's important for us to remember that in the middle of trauma and depression and hopelessness and despair, all the violence that's happening today, there are places in us that must be expressed, will be expressed, and that can move us towards a place of reconciliation and and peacefulness. I really believe that. Thank you for
0: listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Renee Cunningham. Her new book, Archetypal Nonviolence, King, Young, and Culture Through the Eyes of Selma is now available from Rutledge. For more, you can visit her website, reneecunningham.net, Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Tripart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, tripart.net That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T you can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, PATREON.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a-2-3-c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
2: Waiting, waiting, waiting. When I into number nine, into number nine of the or the less, less entire, entire. typewriter, mimic, typewriter disaster. mimic disaster. Disaster. Opening chapter. Opening chapter. The writing machine, like those of a like do-it-yourself. Do Fear of restrooms he is to life. head slightly He is in the past. The, the senses was the tear vile. Perception us. The painter's technique in his powers. Swinging his powers. back society too close. With Satan save. glued save. into your. I dare you. Into me. I know you. Joint, know efforts. joint efforts. Pray. Originally ground almost backwards signal, almost on my idea signal. of regression of brainstorming in his powers might be might Europe be. in North America that allowed for contact between defining data as its resistance to definition New dimension. might be we may gambling scenes. But it is New Dimension. Light ambience, my fire. my fire. Unconsciously. My fire. After all. all forces. After all, one. As discussed, Just smart. Sickly, smart, sickly smart, thing to, smart, to mend. Resting. The cat, resting waiting. The grand highway. Once. Thus bringing. his work. This the data is allowed for. Opening chapter constant internal observations and had, had slightly waiting provided on their provided intersection new forms the particles relationships in 1913 to sound despite that lead sight and then he would turn his the daughter the data is allowed for organism in dreams I talk with you sexuality in your dreams last physical love we into Constant internal. With all the tentacles. Observations. The people who. Particles. The daughter. Tentacles. The movement is. Itself. Kinesthetic. Of the. That mind. Into number nine. Light my fire. Typewriter mimic. swing back. Sickly thin. In the past was the tear vial. To mend. The painter's technique is the cut. Is Opening, the cut. Chapter. Opening chapter unconsciously, unconsciously. organism unconsciously. from the every level inherit business inherit. of life sexuality of life. and computed dust, when I into number nine of the specialized the entire the nature of words disaster as discussed close Cut up's forces is the cut. I dare you, sick them, I know you against a rock clarifies their formal debate as to the exact now is blessed backwards on my idea of regression. He would turn his in his powers in dreams I talk with you almost in your dreams last into me. The into. the into joint efforts, joint efforts. And, then, and then new dimension. New dimension. Despite Vanessa, despite, but, but there is uh, there is. Uh,